Hey, listeners, before we get started, we need your help. We want to know more about you. So please take a short survey by visiting npr.org slash podcast survey. Fifty years ago this week, in the early morning hours of June 28, 1969, police raided a gay bar in New York City called the Stonewall Inn. And the uprising that followed became a turning point in the movement for LGBTQ rights. It's the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. I'm Jasmine Morris. And in this week's episode, we'll revisit the very first documentary StoryCorps founder Dave Isay made back in 1989 called Remembering Stonewall. Today, the Stonewall Inn is a national historic landmark. But when Dave made his documentary, many of those involved in the uprising had never told their story. And it's worth noting that the history of Stonewall is murky. Did a drag queen start the riot? Or was it a butch lesbian? Did someone throw the first punch? Or was it a shoe? Or a brick? Or a Molotov cocktail? But what we do know is that police would routinely raid gay bars. And for LGBTQ folks, this harassment was nothing new. There had been other so-called riots around the country in response to this treatment, most notably in Los Angeles and San Francisco. But what was different on this night at the Stonewall Inn is that when patrons fought back, the world took notice. My name is Sylvia Rivera. I started dressing in drag in 1961. There were before Stonewall was a hard error. There was always the gay bashings on the drag queens by heterosexual men, women, and the police. We learned to live with it because it was part of the lifestyle at that time, I guess. But none of us were very happy about it. My name is Seymour Pine. In 1968, I was assigned as deputy inspector in charge of public morals in the first division in the police department, which covered the Greenwich Village area. It was the duty of public morals to enforce all laws concerning vice and gambling, including prostitution, narcotics, and laws and regulations concerning homosexuality. The part of the penal code which applied to drag queens was section 240.35, section 4. Being masked or in any manner disguised by unusual or unnatural attire or facial alteration, loiters, remains, or congregates in a public place with other At that time, we lived no at the Arista Hotel. Except that such we sit around... Just try to figure out when it, when this harassment would come to an end. And we, we would always dream that one day it would come to an end. And we prayed and we looked for it. We wanted to be human beings. My name is Red Mahoney. I've been hanging out, drinking, partying, and working and the gay bars for the last 30 years. In the era before Stonewall, all, all of the bars, 90% of the bars, 
were mafia controlled. There wasn't that many gay bars. You'd have maybe one, two uptown in the Upper East Side. They would get closed down and there'd be one or two in the West Side. They'd get closed down and Midtown there'd be one, two, three maybe open. As they would get closed down, they'd move around and they were dumps. I'm Joe Nessel, co-founder of what is now the largest collection of lesbian culture in the world. The police raided lesbian bars regularly and they did it they both did it in the most um, obvious way, which was hauling women away in paddy wagons. But they did, there was regular weekend harassment, which would consist of the police coming in regularly to get their payoffs. And in the sea colony, we had a back room with a red light. And when that red light went on, it meant the police would be arriving in around 10 minutes. And so we all had to sit down at our tables. And we would be sitting there almost like school children. And the cops would come in. Now, depending on who was on, which cop was on, if it was some that really resented the butch women, who were with many times very beautiful women, we knew we were in for it because what would happen is they would start harassing one of these women and saying, Ha, huh, you think you're a man? Come outside, we'll show you. And the woman would be dragged away. They'd throw up against a wall and they'd say, So you think you're a man? Let's see what you got in your pants. And they would put their hand down her pants. The Stonewall? Oh, that was a good boy. That was. Just to get into the stone wall, you'd walk up and you'd knock on the front door. You'd knock and the little door would open and, Hey, what do you want? A Mary sent me. Good. Come on in, girls. You know, the stone wall, like all gay bars at that time, were painted black. Charcoal black. And what was the funny part? The place would be so dimly lit. But as soon as the cops are going to come in to collect their percentage or whatever they were coming in for from it being a nice dimly lit dump the place was lit up like Luna Park you felt well two guys and that's very often all we sent in would be two men could handle 200 people I mean you tell them to leave and they leave and you say show me your identification and they all take out their identification and file out and, and that's it and you say okay you're not a man, you're a woman, or you're vice versa, and, and you wait over there. I mean, this is a, a, a kind of power that you have, and you never gave it a second thought. The drag queen took a lot of oppression, and we had to... We, we were at a point where, I guess, nothing would have stopped us. I guess... As they say, or as Shakespeare says, we were ladies and waiting, just waiting for the thing to happen. And when it did happen, we were there. On Friday evening, June 27, 1969, at about 11.45, eight officers from New York City's public moral squad loaded into four unmarked police cars and headed to the Stonewall Inn here at 7th Avenue and Christopher Street. The local precinct had just received a new commanding officer who kicked off his tenure by initiating a series of raids on gay bars. A number of the bar's patrons had spent the early part of the day outside the Frank Campbell funeral home where Judy Garland's funeral was held. She had died the Sunday before. It was almost precisely at midnight that the moral squad pulled up to the Stonewall Inn led by Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine. For some reason, things were different this night. As we were bringing the prisoners out, they were resisting. 
people started gathering in front of the Sheridan Square Park right across the street from Stonewall. People were upset. No, we're not going to go. And people started screaming and hollering. One drag queen, as we put her in the car, opened the door on the other side and jumped out, at which time uh, we had to chase that person. He was caught, put back into the car. He made an, another attempt to get out the same door, the other door. And uh, at that point, we had to handcuff the, uh, uh, the person. From this point on, things really began to get crazy. My name is Robert Rivera, and my nickname is Bertie, and I've been cross-dressing all of my life. I remember the night of the riots. The police were escorting the queens out of the bar and into the paddy wagon, and there was this one particularly outrageously beautiful queen with stacks and stacks of Elizabeth-style, Elizabeth Taylor-style hair, and uh, she was asking them not to push her. And they continued to push her, and she turned around and she mashed the cop with her high heel. She knocked him down, and then she proceeded to frisk him for her the keys to the handcuffs that were on her. She got them, and uh, she undid herself and passed them to another queen that was behind her. Well, that's when all hell broke loose at that point. And then we were, we had to get back into the Stonewall. My name is Howard Smith. On the night of the Stonewall riots. I was a reporter for the Village Voice, locked inside with the police, covering it for my column. It really did appear that that crowd, because we could look through little peepholes in the plywood windows, we could look out and we could see that the crowd, well, my guess was within five, ten minutes, it was probably several thousand people. Now, two to two thousand, easy. And they were yelling, kill the cops police brutality, let's get them, we're not going to take this anymore, let's we get them. We noticed a group of uh, persons uh, attempting to uproot uh, one of the uh, parking meters in which, they, in which they did succeed. And they then uh, used that parking meter to, uh, as a battering ram to break down the door. And they did, in fact, open the door they crashed it in, and at that point was when they began throwing uh, Molotov cocktails into the place. It was a situation that uh, we didn't know how we were going to be able to control. I remember someone throwing a Molotov cocktail. I don't know who the person was, but I mean, I saw that, and I just said to myself in Spanish, I said, oh my God, the revolution is finally here. And I just like started screaming, freedom, <laughs> we're free at last, you know. And it, it felt really good. There were a couple of cops stationed on either side of the door with their pistols, like in a combat stance, aimed in the door area. A couple others were stationed in other places, behind like a pole, another one behind the bar. All of them with their guns ready. I don't think up to that point I ever had ever seen cops that scared. Remember, these were pros, but everybody was frightened. There's no question about that. I know I was frightened. And I've been in, in combat situations, and uh, there was never any time that I felt more scared than I felt that night. And uh, I mean, there was just, you know, there was no place to run. 
once the tactical police force showed up, I think that really incited us a little bit more. My name is Martin Boyce, and in 1969, I was a drag queen known as Miss Martin. I remember on that night, when we saw the riot police, all of us drag queens, we linked arms, like the Rockettes, and sang the song we used to sing. We are the village girls, we wear our hair and curls, we wear our dungarees above our nelly knees. And the police went crazy hearing that, and they just immediately rushed us. We gave one kick and fled. My name is Rudy, and uh, the night of the storm while I was 18, and to tell you the truth, that night I was doing more running than fighting. I remember looking back from 10th Street, and there on Waverly Street, there was a police, I believe, on his uh, cop, and is on his stomach in his tactical uniform and his helmet and everything else, with a drag queen straddling him. She was beating the hell out of him with her shoe. Whether it was a high heel or not, I don't know. But she was beating the hell out of him. It was hysterical. My name is Mama Jean. Uh, I'm a lesbian. I remember on that night, I was in a gay bar, a women's bar, called Cookies. And that's when we saw everything happen. Blasting away, people getting beat up. Police coming from every direction. Uh, Hitting women as well as men with their nightsticks. Uh, gay men running down the street with blood all over their face. We decided right then and there whether we scared or not. We didn't think about it. We just jumped in. Here, this queen is going completely bananas, you know, jumping and hitting the windshield. And next thing you know, the taxi cab was being turned over, or the cars were being turned over, things. Windows were shattering all over the place. Wires were burning around the place. It was, a be- it was beautiful. It really was. It was really beautiful. I remember one cop coming at me, hitting me with the nightstick in the back of my legs. I broke loose and I went after him. I grabbed his nightstick, my girlfriend went behind him. She was a strong seven again. I wanted him to feel the same pain I felt. And I kept on saying to him, how do you like the pain? Do you like it, do you like it? I kept on hitting him and hitting him. I was angry, I wanted to kill him. At that particular minute, I wanted to kill him. I wanted to do every destructive thing that I could think of at that time to hurt anyone that had hurt us through the years. It's like just when you see a man protecting his own life. They weren't the queens that people call them. They were men fighting for their lives. And I'd fight alongside them any day, no matter how old I was. A lot of heads were bashed. A lot of people were hurt. But it didn't hurt their true feelings. They all came back from war and war. Nothing, that's when you could tell that nothing could stop us at that time or at any time in the future. from Remembering Stonewall, produced by StoryCorps founder Dave Isay in 1989. Dave dedicated that documentary to his dad, Richard Isay, a well-known psychiatrist and gay rights activist. Richard Isay died in 2012 on the anniversary of Stonewall.
To hear the rest of Remembering Stonewall, go to our website, storycorps.org. Next, reflections on Stonewall from a StoryCorps booth. We'll also hear from you, our listeners. All season, we've been asking you to record an LGBTQ elder in your life, and you delivered. Stay with us. Hi, this is Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from the all-new three-row Subaru Ascent. There's room for seven or eight passengers and a choice of second-row captain's chairs or bench seating. The Ascent also features standard symmetrical all-wheel drive for added confidence in all-weather conditions. The Subaru Ascent. Love is now bigger than ever. Learn more at Subaru.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Making Gay History, creator of the Making Gay History podcast, telling the stories of LGBTQ history through the voices of the people who lived it. This June, a special season celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising with never-before-heard archival audio. Making Gay History. Listen and subscribe. Welcome back. As we noted earlier this season, some say what happened at Stonewall 50 years ago was a riot. Some call it a rebellion or an uprising. But regardless of the term, Stonewall doesn't just refer to the events of June 28, 1969. The unrest actually lasted for six nights. And Michael Levine was there. He came to StoryCorps with his friend, Matthew Merlin, to remember how that week unfolded. When we came back on Saturday night, we stood there on the street and held hands and kissed, something we would never have done three days earlier. It made me feel wonderful. I stood there with chills. It was like when you're watching a parade and the flag goes by and, you know, you see something you're so proud of and you see your troops and you get that chill inside of you. I got a chill. I got a chill seeing guys on the street holding hands and kissing. And in the week that followed, I got phone calls from relatives cousins, my brother, my aunt, we're just calling to find out if you're okay. We know you go to places like this. We want to make sure you're all right. That means they knew all along. It's like I was wearing a sign on my back. They knew. We never discussed it. I never once had to say to anyone in my family, I'm gay. How did you feel about yourself between the beginning of Stonewall and after Stonewall? Did you feel that you were a different person? No, I didn't feel that I was a different person. I was the same me. I was a homosexual person coming from an old-fashioned Jewish neighborhood, living in Greenwich Village on my own. I felt the same, but I felt the world now is more comfortable with me. And Stonewall did that for me. That's Michael Levine talking with his friend, Matthew Merlin, at StoryCorps in New York City. If you've been listening all season, you know that in honor of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, StoryCorps launched an effort to document the stories of LGBTQ elders before they're lost to history. It's called Stonewall Out Loud, and the goal is for people all over the country to take out their phones and record these stories using the StoryCorps app. Like all StoryCorps interviews, each one is preserved forever as part of our archive at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. We've gotten too many submissions to play all of them here, but we wanted to share some that speak directly to Stonewall. This one comes from Christina Cipriani Xavier, who was talking with her friend, Amanda Berry. I was alive in the days of Stonewall. I was 12 at the time and not out. But when it happened, 
I felt compelled to go down to the village and just walk. Yeah. You know, the people who were at the forefront of the Stonewall Riots, the people who fought back, fought back because they had no choice. Right. And it's on their backs that this movement is built upon. And people like myself and people like yourself, all of us are part of that. Mm -hmm. We just keep building so that 50 years from now, somebody will look back and say, that was really the Dark Ages. We're hearing from some familiar voices on the StoryCorps app as well, like Alexis Martinez, who we first heard from back in 2013. This time, she told her friend Lewin Joy Sherman about the first Pride Parade she ever attended. And Alexis started their conversation by talking about the path that led her there. I was so frustrated as a kid because mm-hmm. I knew like when I was four years old that I was a girl and I would have to do everything in my power to disguise myself. I got into a fight in the projects with this kid, Horace. He was like 14 years old, but he's like six foot four, <laughs> a basketball player. He jumped on top of me. So what I did is I bit him in his nose. Years later, right, the first time that I went to a pride parade in Chicago, I got hair down to my butt. I'm like this cute looking girl. And yeah. who comes up to me but Horace? And he's got scars on his nose. He goes, what are you doing here? And I'm, <laughs> I'm just watching the parade. But you see, he was queer. In a lot of ways, I think it's exactly what Stonewall was all about, mm-hmm. is this coming out. Mm-hmm. It, it was. It was, no, we don't have to hide. We don't have to be subjected to police raids, we have a right to exist. I wasn't at Stonewall when the whole thing broke up, but I think Stonewall served the purpose, like uncorking a bottle, and it just, you couldn't contain it anymore. It was like an explosion that affected people across the country. All of a sudden there was somewhere where people were standing up and fighting. That's all for this episode of the StoryCorps podcast. It was produced by Judd S.D. Kendall and me. Our production assistant is Afi Yellow-Duke. Our engineer is Jarrett Floyd. Natsumi Ajisaka is our fact checker. Remembering Stonewall was produced by Dave Isay with Michael Shirker. Special thanks to Katie Simon, Madison Mullen, Josh Christensen, and our partners, the National LGBTQ Task Force, Sage, Grio Circle, and Glisten. And it's not too late to record an elder in your community. Head over to storycore.org slash outloud to learn how. As always, you can see what music we used in this episode on our website, along with original artwork created for this season. For the StoryCorps podcast, I'm Jasmine Morris. Thanks for listening, and happy Pride. This podcast is brought to you by supporters of StoryCorps, an independently funded nonprofit organization. Go to storycorps.org to learn more.